Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TiffNow, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Juliana Naughton, a Toronto filmmaker who's just released their first feature film, Aaron's Guide to Kissing Girls, a comedy about two middle school BFFs whose bond is tested when one of them becomes obsessed with the new girl in their class. It just opened at the Carlton in Toronto, and it's available on digital and on demand across Canada right now. It's charming. You should see it. Juliana picked Charlotte Wells' Aftersun, a study of a father and daughter on vacation at a resort in Turkey sometime in the late 90s or early 2000s. The father, Callum, is played by Paul Mescal, who's just been nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor. The daughter, Sophie, is played by the equally remarkable Frankie Corio. And the more we watch the film, the more we realize we're watching Sophie's memories of Callum, and led to understand why this trip was so significant for her. It's a masterpiece, plain and simple. And given that my own father would have turned 80 this week, it's one that can't help but land very personally. But I'm glad we got the chance to talk it through. This is someone else's movie. I mean, I'm always a sucker for a good coming-of-age film. And, like, (laughs) uh, I think you had the same experience where this film just, like, emotionally wrecked me um, in a good way. Um, (laughs) But... (laughs) Uh, It's just so unbelievably beautiful and subtle. And um, I just really love the visual storytelling too, um, in terms of like how it captures childhood memory so well. Because I feel like that's something that I'm always chasing after is like this feeling that you have from like being a kid. Um, And this film does it so beautifully. uh, And I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it since we saw it. Um, I had heard a lot of things about this film. Um, and so like going in, I was kind of expecting like this gut punch and I was watching most of the film and I was like, this is really good. This is like beautiful, but like, I'm not feeling like punched in my gut. (laughs) And then the third act happens and I was just like wrecked. Um, and after the film, uh, my wife and I are just sitting there in the cinema and I was like, I, I can't get on the subway right now. Like I need to like walk home and like talk about this film with you. (laughs) So that's what we did. And we just like walked home and talked about it for 45 minutes. But yeah, it's just, um, this like really beautiful piece that has like, I think it's going to stick with me for a while. I came at it. Um, I basically saw it blind. I, I, yeah, I caught it at the Preston Industry Screening on the first day of TIFF, mm-hmm. 4 p.m. I had a little window. It was the one day I wasn't really doing much of anything. Yeah. So I caught three films in a row. I've uh, been there. Af- yeah. After Sun, RMN, uh, Christian Munju's film, and uh, Living, the, the Bill Nye movie. And it laid me out. I uh, I didn't know what I was expecting. I... I I only knew that Charlotte Wells's short films were really highly regarded. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I'm ashamed to admit I didn't even know who Paul Mescal was. Um, I mean, I'd seen him in The Lost Daughter, but because I never watched Normal People, I just missed the whole phenomenon of him. Yeah, I know him from uh, Normal People, and just phenomenal in that as well. So I'm so I'm told. Yeah, mm-hmm. but this was this was the first time I've had any real long term. I mean, he's in The Lost Daughter for maybe 20 minutes of footage, but right. barely speaks. He, he's just in the background effectively. And he just had me 
right away. Um, the the device of the film, the way that we're brought into it with the the um, camcorder noises, which are, you know, strangely my ASMR is old. <laughs> That and that and computer dial-up sounds. They just immediately take me back to a window of time when that yeah. was, you know, it was in the air everywhere. And her tenderness towards him, towards mm -hmm. both characters, but the slow dawning of understanding within the structure of the film, letting us know what we're watching and why and what we're looking for. Yeah. Oh it my just... And then that final shot, which is so smart and so simple um but yes i was supposed to get up and run to the next movie and i just sat there while the theater emptied out and just sat in it and and took my time got up went to the next thing and really rmn is very good but it's not um it's not personal in the way that after sun was for me and yeah. then, of course, the, the fun bit is uh, my father died. Uh, oh, my gosh. Six weeks later. And, wow. um, and that was the week after Sun came out theatrically. And I had to write the review after the fact oh my gosh. Uh, for my newsletter. And just, it was good. It was purgative uh, yeah. in, a really, in a really strange way. But it was one of those things where I wrote the review from memory. I didn't want to revisit the film because I just wasn't ready. And I'm I don't know that I am yet. Because um, mm -hmm. the idea that you're you're with this, this ghost, you're with this adult person, the person that the kid will be yeah. looking at this footage of, of a, uh, of a vacation that I'm assuming she doesn't remember fondly, mm -hmm. but which is now sort of the Rosetta stone of her entire adulthood because she's trying to understand her father and therefore herself, right? Like it's, it's that reversed origin story that, um, that we all go through. When yeah. we when we reach a certain level of of maturity, where you know when you finally see your parents as people rather than caregivers, you know, like, and you understand their flaws and their their failings, and you you just get caught in this in this loop that isn't melancholy and it isn't sadness, but it also kind of is, and there's this ineffable quality to that experience that. I think this is the first time I've seen a film capture it. And if, yeah, if I hadn't seen it at the festival, if I hadn't caught up until after the, when it, when it was released, I think it would have actually destroyed me instead. It would, you know, it merely wrecked me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that's exactly it. And I feel like there's a version of this story that like is maybe more traditionally Hollywood that like is more like, you know, crying and yelling and like, you know, monologues and like things like that. And it's just sort of like this, like quietness about it that like makes it so heartbreaking and so beautiful. And like his mental health is never treated as spectacle. And like, you know, we only really know as much as um, Sophie does in the film, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting in of itself. Um, but what I also thought was really cool about it is that, you know, as soon as like you kind of realize what is going on by the end in this sort of like gentle easing in kind of way, like you find yourself also sort of wanting to race through the film again, like through the memories of it as well to just sort of like pick up all the pieces. 
um, which, you know, it's cool. What I watched it for the second time uh, just yesterday. Um, and like you, like, there's just so many things that are also so deliberate that I didn't pick up on the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like there's, uh, I don't know, like even the fact that like they're on the raft and he's saying like, I want you to know, like, you can always talk to me. You can always tell me like all these things like about like drugs and parties and like kids and, uh, like kisses and whatever. Um, I was like, oh, that is like so heartbreaking. Like knowing that like he knows he might not necessarily be there, but he's still telling her like, you can talk to me about this. And I was like, it just got me in a whole new, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. The thing I keep coming back to was that there's no writing on the cast that mm -hmm. mm. it's, it's simple. It's a visual signifier that something has happened and we, we never know what we, we never know the, mm -hmm. the full scope of so many things. I mean, is Callum drinking too much? He might mm -hmm. not be. He might just be drinking an ordinary amount for someone who's on vacation. Um, mm -hmm. But we see it constantly. Um, and so you're just led to question, like, is that self-medication? Is that some? Is that in some way connected to the misery that we're seeing elsewhere leaking out of him? Or is it just him functioning or, or, or pretending to be a, a person on holiday? Right. Like yeah. in his, in his moments alone, when, when uh, Sophie's not there and we get to see him, which is of course the, the thing that I know at least two people who are pissed off about that. The fact that it isn't just found footage, mm. um, but it's memory, right? I mean, it's yeah, a reconstruction. Yeah. So we're allowed to imagine what, or I, I suppose Sophie's allowed to imagine what things were like when he wasn't around, when she wasn't around for him. Mm -hmm. But, but the, fact that so much of it is a blank that has to be filled in is really striking to me. The And the fact that the, the cast has no writing on it just tells me he doesn't have anyone. Yeah. Like there's just, oh. there's no one. And that's it, right? This is the, we don't know how long it's been since he last saw Sophie. We yeah. only know that they're together now and he's incredibly awkward. She's awkward in a different way because when you're at that age, you want to go have adventures and mm -hmm. no matter what his, his circumstance, he's not going to want the same adventures as, as a child. Yeah. And she's figuring out who she is and going off and, and experimenting with things. And he's trying so hard to be there for her, but some part of him's already gone. And, and like, that's the ending. That's the whole film over and over again is just showing us the gap between them that's getting wider and wider until it isn't even metaphorical anymore. And it's just this absolute shocking loss that's mm -hmm. been waiting the whole time. I mean, it is, it, it's a film about the dread of losing a parent. Yeah. Even if you don't know it at the time. I don't know yeah. how you do that. I don't know how you infuse a film with that. And it's obviously, Morven Keller comes up as a as a point of comparison, and and she's said that she pulled from it um, in a number of ways. But the emotional tension is just so unique to this film and so powerful. Yeah, it's like, and the tension is something that's so interesting uh, throughout the film. In that, like, you know, there, you know, it's sort of like building to something, but you're not quite sure what, and you're like kind of dreading something you know that's coming mm. but 
you know, it, it, it seems like most things are like fine and like, you know, they seem to have a good relationship and you, but like, even I found like with the score, like they do like such a good job of sort of, um, you know, creating this like dreamlike sequence um, while also like building this kind of like unease. And I felt like it almost sounded like cicadas, like this, like, you know, late summer feeling. Um, yeah. And all the things about the cast also just like hit so true. And that scene in particular where he's cutting off the cast in the bathroom, like that is like the whole film right there. Yeah. Like, the way like the way that they're lit and like what's going on and like him just like keeping his voice even even though he's in like this pain like trying to get this cast off and just keeping his voice even and not letting her know like you know this pain that he's in and this comes right after a scene where he's like oh you know you can tell me anything right I want you to be able to like tell me um things but then he's not providing that to her at all that comes back to parents and children, right? Like the idea that every child sees their parents as someone who's there to protect them no matter what. Mm -hmm. And he is so incapable of holding himself together that she must know. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the thing that I kept coming back to as well. Watching the footage is like, oh, you're looking for the thing that you already know, but mm -hmm. you're, tr you're trying to find hard evidence. And why? Like what is, what, what moment now? She's become a parent herself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we hear the baby. And the, the feeling that she's, I, I still don't know. And I, I don't know that I'll ever really truly know, which of course is the whole point of the film, but I, we don't know if she's looking because she's looking for signs in herself that she missed something that he's doing that she might be repeating. You know, like everybody, when they become parents, apparently fall into the, the uh, trap of, of processing their parents' behavior for the first time. I, I only have dogs. That's my deal. It's fine. I think it's better for everyone. But, <laughs> but it is so strange to, to suddenly realize that we are just sort of the buckets of DNA and, and mm -hmm. whatever we inherit is ours to deal with. And yeah. so I thought about this and I wondered about it watching the film and, and then I stopped thinking about it because the, the present day that the, or the, the, the memory overwhelms you and you just, you get pulled into the immediate drama. But the idea that this, it's not a hall of mirrors exactly, right? Like it's, it's the thing you get when you point a camera at a television set, you get the mm -hmm. infinite regression, um, like, which becomes a kind of a memory wormhole for Sophie. I think that that's the mm -hmm. only way I can articulate it. And it's way too complicated. The film is too simple. The film doesn't need this level of interrogation because it's all so like it's hard is right there on the screen yeah yeah no absolutely like i i think she's also um like because it's implied all or they say like it's her birthday that day and like i think like also the fact that she's approaching this age or an age that you know her father is or never got to be yeah. um as like Charlotte Wells has talked about, like that was sort of like the inspiration behind the film, like that sort of like causes her to look back and, you know, it's painful, but you're left at the end with like this feeling of like catharsis, like, you know, looking back is always, I, I think it's, there's like, there's this idea of like, 
how memories get trapped in your brain after someone has passed as well. And everything sort of has been like given this extra meaning um, when like it may not mean something and memory is unreliable and you think you can remember it so perfectly. But, you know, there's, there are these gaps and, uh, and whether, you know, it actually has, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, the, the research into the, the creation and maintenance of memory is absolutely fascinating. There's one yeah. theory that says every time you remember something, you slowly, you subtly rewrite it. Yeah. Uh, because it's so more, wild to think about. Yeah. Because it's more intense this the next time and the next time and the next time your brain is delving further. And so it's like glossy compression. You fill in the gaps and you don't always get it right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I think like the visuals also do like a really good job as I like mentioned before in like capturing that feeling, because I don't know if it's just me, but like when I remember being a kid, like I remember things sort of like in a hyper-focused kind of way, like the, like noticing the, the texture of like a carpet or like the ring playing with like the rings on my mom's fingers, or like I was walking down the street the other day and I was like, oh yeah, I always used to notice like the date stamped in the sidewalk and all these little things that like, you know, you pass by um, when you're grown up and you've got like too much going on. But as a kid, you've like, you are like so focused on all these like little details and the way that you see the world. And I just felt like the visual style did such a good job of like, you know, it it's more nuanced than just taking a camera from a lower angle and looking up, which like it does sometimes, but like, you know, you're seeing things like a like out of the corner or really close up, or you're focusing on the breathing of like your father, um, like all those things really just hit home for me. Um, because like, I, like I said, like, I feel like I'm always chasing these feelings that I had at this age. Cause it felt like so specific and unique. And like the way that you look at the world is so fresh um, which is why I think I'm like attracted to coming of age stories and, uh, you know, in both consuming and creating. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on shiny things. My twice weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Universal's symbiotic releases of She Said and Tar, and spun up Shout Factory's 4K edition of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead to see how well that movie holds up. Turns out, pretty well. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, I'll definitely die. Come check it out. It's the thing that I'm... I think I'm least interested in as a, as a writer, mm -hmm. um, because in my mind, there's only one story and they've already been told like that's that story mm -hmm. has been told a million different ways. And, and 
it's not that the genre can't produce masterpieces because it's clearly still happening. And every new generation will have a new take on how they get into it, how they're like a new way in to tell the same story. Um, mm -hmm. The device in After Sun is, is like, we've seen this before, but it's never been applied in this way to the emotional intimacy and the immediacy of it. But I think it's also because I'm not interested in my own origin story. I, mm. I don't, I was there and it wasn't that, like, it was pretty boring. <laughs> I was just a reader. My parents divorced when I was 10. What else is there? Like there's, there's like, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who spent his entire adolescence in his head. Um, I've always been 40, <laughs> <laughs> but I am, like, I am yeah, amazed to find people who can recall the textures and the, and the evocation, mm -hmm. uh, in a way that, that they're doing right now. Something, something seems, seems to have shifted in, in cinema where, and I was wondering too, if it was the pandemic. That, that mm -hmm. started it, where people were alone with their thoughts for, for longer than they'd ever had to be before. And we had this burst of, of movies, um, The Fablemans is one, and Armageddon Time, James Gray's film, and this, and and I think I just, there's another one too that I was just, oh, uh, When You Finish Saving the World, mm -hmm. Jesse Eisenberg's film. Mm -hmm. um, this, this wave of movies that are all about how kids are hostage to their parents. And not just in terms of we're going this place today, but when I leave you, whenever that will be, that will scar you forever. And there's nothing either of us can do about it. And clearly this is the whole point of After Sun. Mm -hmm. But it's also about Sophie as an adult grappling with that same thought that she's probably only just had, right? That, mm -hmm. that feels like the spark. That feels like the genesis of the whole movie. But to come out the other end with a film like this, that's so utterly heartbreaking and naturalistically acted. We haven't even spoken about Frankie Corio, who I don't know that that isn't the best child performance I've ever seen. It's so good. Like the way that she's able to straddle like the silliness of that age while yeah. also with also like the maturity and like observance that like you can have at 11. And I feel like, you know, that age can sometimes get a bad rep, but like they truly are like so observant and like the way that um, like one of the scenes where she's saying like, oh, I have like so-and-so as a teacher next year. And he's like, oh, the one from Glasgow. And she's like, mm, you like, why do you know that? Like, you know, and she like yeah. picks up on that right away. And like, she, she knows that he's smoking and she knows, like, she knows all these things um, while still just being like this, like goofy young kid. And I think this is like, also like credit to Charlotte Wells for just like making Frankie feel so comfortable on set and so comfortable with Paul. Um, but yeah, like just two powerhouses just, delivering amazing amazing performances yeah this is one of those films where i i just want to watch the dailies i want to see know, everything yeah. they kept <laughs> everything they didn't keep everything that worked its way through all the different cuts of any given scene however many takes there are it's just yeah you feel like you're looking through a window into a real relationship which is so so rare in yeah. you know and this is a this is an art form that is based on creating that Absolutely. And 
sometimes you can, you know, you'll see a movie and think, oh, that was really well done, or wow, that was a great speech, or, you know, this monologue is phenomenal and this actor should get more work. But I was watching, you know, strangers. I was watching a father and daughter that I'd never seen, but that I'd never met before, just existing for 90 odd minutes. And apparently they rehearsed for two weeks and went to a resort mm -hmm. to, to get that down. But even when they're not together, you sort of feel the bond, yeah. which is like those little hesitations in, in Sophie's decisions where she's mm -hmm. clearly just wondering if she can get away with something. And that's her dad's influence. And Callum knowing that there's an entire relationship between Sophie and her mom that he's simply locked out of mm. um, the scene with the rug, right? Where it's, it's clearly a thing he's thought about doing. And yeah. the rug is just the the device. The rug is the excuse. But it's something he's like, you just feel it in Mescal's performance. This is a performance of of competence. Like yeah. He's pretending to be, oh yeah, I, this is nothing. This is no problem. We know he doesn't mm -hmm. have money. We know he can't afford it. He probably can't even pay for the shipping. Yeah. Uh, oh, in fact, he can't, right? Because they take it back on the she takes it back on the plane, doesn't she? Or no, uh, sorry, I'm I'm imagining no. that. Yeah, that didn't yeah, happen. I, don't think so, but. <laughs> um, I just filled that blank in myself. <laughs> But she has the rug. We know yeah. that. Yeah, I think like that was the moment in the film that clicked for me. Like, oh, he's not there. And oh, it was probably suicide. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, you know, why it was that moment. But I think it was just sort of like knowing that he couldn't afford it, but he still bought it, like felt like, you know, I was like, oh, no. And then they like show her with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's even a moment. I mean, I I don't. Speaking of memory, I remember it very clearly. I don't know if it's actually real, but I remember a moment where he thinks about it for a second. He's doing some kind of calculation in his head, and whether it's math about money or time, mm. I don't know. And that haunts me. That and the scene where where Callum wades into the water, mm -hmm. into the surf, and you brace yourself. And yeah. then he just shows up in bed crying. And now I think it was a rehearsal. Yeah. So she's giving us everything. And this again is Sophie filling in the blanks of her, of her videotapes. Cause there's no way yeah. that was filmed. She couldn't know, but maybe because she does know how he died, she's mm -hmm. filling it in that he tried something, experimented with it. He was wet when she found him. Maybe that's the answer. I, it just—it yeah. feels oh. like someone turning it over and over and over again, like a prism looking for the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I just love how much she trusts her audience and like in all of the things that are like not said. Mm. I was sort of braced for people to, to reject it. Mm. when I when I first really? saw it I thought yeah I, I was so every time someone said they loved it I was so glad yeah because I think it's like an empathy test <laughs> if somebody tells me they don't like no. it I can't I can't talk to them anymore yeah it's true because like it is it it is a slow burn and it is not everyone's cup of tea but I haven't talked to anyone who's like regretted seeing it <laughs> yeah that's fair yes I mean it's it's it won the Toronto film. I was so happy. I wasn't part of the deliberations because I was working that day, but um, it won the TFCA's picture, director, actor, just, mm -hmm. just swept, which yeah. never happens uh, yeah. for, for first feature. But I think 
it's undeniable. Like when people see it, they just have to. I was I was actually surprised as a result that it didn't do better in the um, in the Oscar nominations. Just one nomination for Mescal. Yeah, that that broke my heart. I was like, this is like by far the best film that I've seen this year. But. Yeah, but she'll be back. She'll get another shot. I I don't like they'll all have more chances. Every single one of these people, if they choose to, is going to is going to be legendary, I think. Or they'll be chasing this high forever and just (laughs) disappointing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But it's um, yeah, it's such a it's such a tiny. Perfect thing that you almost you want to protect it, like you want to throw yourself on it and keep it safe. And then, of course, yeah. that's that's how Sophie feels about Callum. That's like it's made you it's 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 put you in her head so fully that you, you know, what was it? Four months later, five months later, I haven't left. I know. Yeah. And like, I know I'm going to be thinking about this film for a long time. And I'm like so curious to know, like also like what her process, like writing this film was and like what, you know, a first draft was like and how many attempts it took her to like finally get down to like the core of it because like the closer you get to the truth and the closer you get to you know um your memory of it it uh the more painful it is and the more gentle that like you need to be with yourself and yeah it's really something you just don't want to you don't want to be the person who breaks it no yeah. Had you seen her short film? Had you seen Tuesday? I have not. No. Uh, this makes me want to go back and look at all of her work now and see, you know, what has led her to this point. But yeah, she's definitely someone who I will be watching for a long time now. Yeah. I almost had her on the podcast. We, um, we were oh, supposed really? to do it. Yeah. And apparently she's very shy, but <laughs> um, I would have been really good. I would have been yeah. very gentle and accommodating. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. Oh, it hurts. Um, I'll get her sometime. We'll we'll yeah. talk it through. It's it's just, and I don't doubt that she'll be back. That there'll be something else. It's it's yeah. sort of the feeling I got from Joanna Hogg's first film from Unrelated, 15 years mm. ago, and she's working in a very similar register. And actually, uh, this and the Eternal Daughter, Joanna's current film, were mm. are really intriguingly in conversation with one another. They're both mm. about children haunted by their parents. Yeah. Um, even though the parents are right there in front of them. Yeah. Have you, did you, have you caught up to that one yet or? No, I haven't. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of catching up. <laughs> it happens. You had a movie come out. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you've been working. <laughs> well, that's, that's, uh, I guess kind of what I was going to say is like it, it, like as a filmmaker, um, I think people expect you to be able to, I don't know, like promote and talk and whatever about your film, not even like your film, but just in general about like films in a certain way. Um, And I can like relate to Charlotte in terms of like being nervous about like coming on the podcast and like, you know, taking up space. Um, Like I find it like so much easier to be on, like to be on the written page, um, you know, as opposed to uh, trying to express myself verbally. Um, I was talking about this earlier in therapy because I'm like, oh, I'm doing like all this promo for my film right now. And it's like, it's so nerve wracking and exhausting. Um, And like people sort of expect a certain thing from me. Um, But I feel like 
I sometimes I need space that I don't have like in these moments. Um, whereas like when I'm like writing, I can just sort of like edit it and like make it perfect and like, you know, put it on the page and, um, like have that space there. Um, so, you know, I can understand when sometimes filmmakers are hesitant to like do all of like the interviews and promo stuff. And they're like, that's not why I got into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly after sun speaks for itself, it, as, as eloquently as anything can, it really, you know, there's no question what it's about. It's just the mystery of it that you, you never stop unpacking. Yeah, absolutely. But I did want to talk about uh, your film as well, because mm-hmm. it's very charming. And also you shot at one of my favorite comic book stores in the world. So we really <laughs> need to get into that. I guess the key question is how, how autobiographical is it? Like how much of you is in there? Yeah. I mean, I've been sort of calling it uh, a love letter to my younger self. And by that, I mean, I, it, involves a lot of the big feelings that I was having when I was 13, 14, like being in grade eight um, to while I was writing the film, I was rereading my grade eight diary, which was like, so cringy, but (laughs) um, it sort of like highlighted for me just like all of these like huge emotions I was going through at that age of like, you know, having crushes for the first time and um, being in fights with my best friends and, uh, thinking about high school. Um, and, uh, yeah. So like the film is, uh, capturing these big feelings that I had at that time, but looking at them through a queer lens, which I was not really afforded the luxury of knowing about myself at that age. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think in part because there was no queer characters or queer media out there where I could see myself represented. And I, you know, I went to a Catholic school. I didn't even know my sexuality was an option. Um, So I didn't come out till much later in life. Um, And so I wanted to create a story where a character got to be unapologetically themselves and out at that, at this age um, both as sort of catharsis for my older self and also like for the younger generation who, you know, is able to identify these things about themselves so that they can see themselves represented positively. Yeah, yeah we're we're in a wave now where, you know, there's queer content everywhere mm-hmm. and a generation is going to grow up never imagining that it's hard to find or that they weren't represented. It's It's remarkable because when I was a kid there was nothing like there was there was really nothing that acknowledged anything other than heteronormative like it was it was the 80s it was it was horrible if when you look back it's you know john hughes was the model uh heteronormative male driven guy on girl for lack of a better term uh Mm -hmm. pursuit and maybe there was you know a coded character within the john hughes room you get ducky basically from pretty sure. in pink who's still yeah. straight but who is who would now be the gay best friend like in a, in a although you still end up wanting him to end up with okay it's complicated but um <laughs> but it is but it was never allowed uh, we've, no. we've, yeah. i've been looking at some stuff produced around that time for a retrospective that we're thinking about doing and 
the like everything comes with a content warning now, just in terms of how rampantly misogynist and homophobic and the, the gay panic jokes are just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And 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 now it's just it's it's so great. Like it's I yeah. I, I I've I find myself I'm maybe a two on the Kinsey scale. I'm pretty straight. But, <laughs> but it's so terrific to see a breadth of experiences and a breadth of, of uh, not even sexualities, but attitudes and, and yeah. personalities be um, be included. Yeah. And and the the movies we're seeing, you know, stuff like even stuff like um, uh, Soft, which premiered at the festival, mm-hmm. and and is not about or or uh, Lucas Don't's Close, mm-hmm. which are films that aren't really about coming out or coming of age, but they sort of also are. And, and they're, they're just the sexuality and the gender aspects are just part of it. It's just there. Yeah, exactly. The expectation is not that they will be applauded for including this content. It's simply the story they want to tell. Yeah. Right. The framework is different. And so a movie like Aaron's Guide to Kissing Girls can just be there mm-hmm. and be one of a dozen right now that are worth seeing and, and, and have things in them that people will hopefully bond to and, and, carry with them yeah absolutely and I think it's like also so great to see um younger ages being represented also uh because with kids having access to the internet 24 7 Mm -hmm. they are able to um like learn things about gender and uh sexual identity that I never had the option to until I was like, you know, maybe late in high school, more university. Um, And so like, they're looking to see themselves represented. And a lot of the mainstream queer content that exists out there starts, you know, grade 11, grade 12. So it's nice to see some younger queer characters and like positive queer stories that are being told that they have access to. Well, that's it, right? When in the, when there was an independent feature in the eighties, or I guess it would be the late eighties, early nineties at best. It would mm-hmm. be things like, well, when was go fish? That was 92 and 93. And they're, they're adults. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fully formed. Yeah. Um, kids weren't allowed to have that representation because well, the moral majority at the time would have just had a stroke. And, <laughs> uh, but they were, you know, Jesse Helms was actively chasing the NEA for Todd Haynes's poison. And, and there's just no possibility of, a clear-eyed representation of queer characters. That's only 30 years ago. Yeah, no, it's wild. It's nice. It's like strange to see how quickly it sort of like flipped. Um, And you can forget very easily that it wasn't that long ago that there was literally like zero characters. Like I'm trying to think about the first uh, queer character I would have seen on screen and I, the only one I can think of that comes up is Damien from Mean Girls. Oh, like, yeah. And he's just sort of like a throwaway character. But like, that was probably the first time I ever saw a gay character who was just, you know, existing his gay life on screen. That wasn't just queer coded. But, yeah. you know. And what was that, 2004, 2003? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I'm sure there were others, but. Oh, me too. But like in terms of like what I had access to as a kid, 
Yeah, you're yeah. coming up at that time and that's what's there. Yeah, because there's like uh, movies like Mysterious Skin and whatnot that existed, but like I was not watching that at that age. <laughs> exactly. And maybe there's a generation that gets tricked into seeing My Own Private Idaho because they heard it's based on yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> that's that's it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad yours is out there. I mean, I'm really, it's wonderful to imagine a future where this is just a movie, yeah. right? Like where it isn't, it doesn't have to be categorized in any way that kids will find this movie 10 years from now on whatever streaming services have taken over the world <laughs> and they'll connect to it because it's just something that's them. that's there for them. I mean, yeah. I, 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 just as just as, as Charlotte Wells is trying, I think, to pay something forward mm-hmm. with After Sun and, and reconcile her own feelings about whatever her childhood was, because there's no way this isn't autobiographical on some level. I mean, she yeah. said as much about Tuesday, but the um, I haven't really wanted to read too much into this just because I. Yeah, that's so fair. Yeah. And I'm also not ready to think about that just yet, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But there is so like there's so much in art that speaks to people because it's someone's story because it's an existing truth. And the thing I love the most about movies like this and movies like yours is that I can connect to you. We've never met until today, but I get a sense of you and it's just, you know, it's a good thing. It's great to know people. Yeah. I have the best job in the world. (laughs) You do. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, obviously the question doesn't, the usual closing question doesn't apply because you shot this before you saw After Sun. Mm-hmm. But um, I would usually ask if there's something that you lifted or borrowed or outright stole from the yeah. film that you brought on. Is there something that you plan to steal? Is there something that you want to use that, that Charlotte Wells did in After Sun that, that resonated with you? I mean, yeah, I, I love that the film kind of does less in a way. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, like, pressure sometimes when you're creating content to do more and make it bigger and, um, you know, create a spectacle. And I love that Charlotte Wells kind of just focuses on, like, these small, intimate moments and, like, does them, like, really well as opposed to just you know, trying to like pack it all in. Cause she could have, like, there is a version where like, she really like goes into the backstory of Callum where like, she really, you know, dives into all of like over explaining all these things. Hmm. Um, and so I'm going to be thinking about that a lot as I work on my next feature. Um, yeah, I I think it's just really beautiful. And I hope I can make a film like half as good as After Sun in my lifetime. <laughs> my thanks to Juliana Naughton, whose charming first feature, Aaron's Guide to Kissing Girls, is now playing in Toronto at the Carlton and available across Canada on digital and on demand. Thanks also to Brianna Hurley. She knows what she did. You can find Juliana on Twitter at Juliana Naughton, all one word. And you can find After Sun on Blu-ray in the UK as of February 20th under the movie label. It's also available to rent and buy in VOD platforms right now, and we've got it for rent at digital.tiff.net. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. 
and check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.